morning, friends. Jody and I are just really deeply privileged to be here with you this weekend to participate in the missions conference. Many of you will know that our friendship with this church began about 15 years ago. We were in the process, very early in the process, of responding to God's call to move our family to Budapest. And I think this was the first church that we met with when we were doing the whole process of developing ministry partners. And so in a, I don't know, September evening in 2008, right outside those doors, uh, 2009, uh, our uh, ministry partnership began. And it's been uh, just a rich and wonderful one for all of those years. We were in Hungary for about 12 years. We left um, last summer. Our boys, Jonah and Parker, were born, not born, they're sorry, graduated from high school in Budapest and um, spent nearly all of their childhood there. And we actually uh, didn't really imagine that we would be leaving. Jody was well situated in her work at the International Christian School of Budapest. She had served as the elementary chaplain, uh, responsible for discipling the younger grades, and was, had been the music teacher for the elementary school, and was presently serving as a part of the school administrative team. For about 10 years, I had been leading Reach Global's uh, team, city team in Budapest, and that team from time to time would, would be up to about 13 or 15 members, great team that God drew together for his work in that city. And I was uh, providing leadership to the Encouragement Foundation, which owns and operates the KMK Ministry Center that Doug mentioned in his prayer. And Jody and I also had the privilege to be a part of a, a church planting effort in Budapest and the church that God gave us, the, the real gift to be able to be a part of at the early stages, which is called Agora Gellert, is now well-established and is doing well. So we weren't really looking to leave, but yet what happened was that we were beginning to see that God was raising up the people that he was preparing to take the roles that we were doing. So I looked on to our team and I saw that God was raising up new leaders. That leader now is Cassidy Baker, who you support. It was clear that God was raising Cassidy up to be a city team leader. Uh, it was clear that God was raising up a, a young man named Farkas Pensa to become the leader of the Encouragement Foundation, which was a, a deep desire of ours to begin to transfer the, the leadership of that organization into Hungarian hands, and we saw who that was going to be. And likewise, a young man who I had been discipling since he was in high school, Balint, God had invited him to become an elder at our church plant. And so we saw pretty clearly that what we needed to do was to step out of the way so that the people that God was raising up to come next would have the opportunity to do those things. So we announced to our team that we were going to be leaving at some point, doing something different, and we began to pray that God would show us what was next for us. And he faithfully showed us in time that, that the next role that he had in mind for me was as director of training for EFCA and Jody to be a part of the member care team as family ministries specialist. And what she does in that role is provide resources to all kinds of uh, issues that families face as they raise their children overseas. Questions about school and parenting and cultural acclimation and that kind of thing. She serves 90 families across the world with Reach Global, which represents close to 200 children who are growing up as third culture kids under the umbrella of the Evangelical Free Church of America. And she's also then responsible for child safety and protecting vulnerable children that are within the, um, the, uh, the reach of ministries uh, with EFCA globally. Well, so let me tell you just a bit about my role and what I do before we dive into our text. My uh, opportunity is to cultivate a culture of learning 
among the workers with EFCA Reach Global. We know that thorough preparation for ministry and a, a commitment to ongoing learning is absolutely critical to fruitfulness in, in ministry. And we also know because studies have shown that mission organizations that do a better job of retaining their staff are those that have some very intentional processes in place to help staff continue to learn and grow. So that's largely what I do. And I have uh, just a great delight in the, uh, the opportunity that I have. We are right now deploying about 30 or so new workers each year with Reach Global. Uh, and, um, and people are serving in 40 or so locations globally. That represents about 560 workers. So what a privilege to be a part of this movement. We are, as I said, so grateful for your support of us and, and your encouragement of us, uh, the fact that we feel so included in this community, to have been adopted by a small group and loved by them, to be welcomed by you, to feel your love and, and your financial support, which enables us to play our part in the work that God has given to our movement, which is to glorify God by multiplying transformational churches among all people. There's a significant celebration going on this month, this November, among Reach Global and the EFCA about that work of global missions. This November, we celebrate 100 years of free church missions activity in Congo, formerly Zaire. So it was 100 years ago this month that Titus Johnson, the first missionary to Congo, departed in and began ministry there. And uh, probably today, in fact, President Kevin Complin and other leaders of our mission are headed to Congo in order to be a part of a centennial celebration. And I'm excited to share with you that what started with one man 100 years ago today is more than 1,500 evangelical free churches in Congo, making up more than 2 million members. Praise God for what he has done, Right? The book of Zechariah says not to despise the day of small beginnings. And praise God that Titus Johnson did not despise the day of small beginnings because what God has done in that 100 years. Well, as we take a turn now to our passage for today, I wanted to mention that perhaps you would have expected that I would have chosen a more typical missions-oriented text. Maybe we should have looked at Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, or maybe we should have spent our time exploring Acts 1-8, which serves as the focus for our missions conference. But instead, we're looking at Isaiah 55. And in your Bible, maybe there's a heading over that text that says, The Great Invitation. Not the great commission, not the great commandment, the great invitation. And that invitation comes to us from the pen of that great prophet of the Old Testament, Isaiah. I thought it would be important for us to begin by just kind of orienting ourselves a little bit to the context. Where do we find this chapter? We should remember that the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah is concerned with the threat that the nation of Assyria brought to both the northern and the southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah. They threatened to, uh, to, to bring God's people into captivity. And in fact, the northern kingdom, Israel was taken into captivity in 721 BC. They were carried off to Assyria. But at that time, God spared the southern kingdom. He spared Judah. 
Only that decades later, they too would be carried off into captivity in 587 BC by a different oppressor, Babylon. But starting with chapter 40, the book of Isaiah fast forwards several hundred years and the prophet is now speaking directly to God's people who are in captivity in Babylon. The section of the book that begins with chapter 40 is commonly known as the book of hope. And these chapters are filled with some of the most beautiful words of scripture. They are filled with with passages that bring hope to these people in captivity. I have to be honest with you that Isaiah 40 is probably my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. And so it's within this book of hope that we find our text for today. It's already been read for us in Spanish, and we've been able to see the text in English. But before we go any farther, I'd love for us to pause and ask God to open our eyes to see his word in a new and fresh way today. So let's pray together. God, we pause in this moment and acknowledge that your word is living and active. Time and time again, we've seen how your powerful word has the ability to pierce into the deepest and darkest places of us. Your word has the ability to bring the very message that we need to hear. And so, Father, this morning we ask, in fact, we plead that again today you would cause your word to come alive among us. We long to hear from you. We long to have a better understanding, Father, of what you're doing in this world and how you have designed for us to be a part of that work of being your witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We pray this, Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, we begin our exploration of this chapter by looking at the very first section, uh, chapter 55, verses 1 and 2, where the invitation is laid out clearly and plainly, an invitation that fully acknowledges the reality of spiritual thirst. Verse 1 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. The word that we see in our text as come is the Hebrew word ho. Ho is very much like the word that street vendors use when they call to passersby to come to their table, their tent, their blanket laid out on the ground to see what they have for sale. There's a sense of urgency implied with this word as as people uh, call out to the passersby, ho, ho, come, come before the last bit of bread is gone, before the last bit of cheese is gone, before I sell this last little trinket that I'm sure that you want. Come before all the inventory has gone away. Some of you will have been to a market like this somewhere in the world. You've experienced this this idea of these sellers calling out, trying to get people to come over to their place of business. In September, Jody and I had the opportunity to visit the REACH Global staff in Amman, Jordan. We were there for a week, and on Thursday night, we went with some colleagues down to the city center of Amman. Uh, Thursday night was the end of the work week, and the streets were absolutely filled with people who were celebrating the end of the week, were thinking towards the weekend, and the, the, the sidewalks were absolutely filled with vendors who were selling all kinds of things, calling out in the, the local equivalent, ho, ho, 
come here. Come, buy and eat, all you who are thirsty. Friends, let's notice that Isaiah is making it clear there are no boundaries associated with this invitation. Everyone who is thirsty is free to come. Everyone is free to come and take of the water. As a young boy in Sweden, Titus Johnson, the first EFCA missionary to Zaire, he grew up under the influence of a, of a Swedish movement that had a very distinct evangelical shape. We too, as, as members of an Evangelical Free Church of America church here in Crystal Lake or for us in, in, uh, in Minnesota, are also the recipients of that great Swedish evangelistic heritage. So as, as a young boy, Titus was formed by, by a culture that caused him to be aware of spiritual thirst around the world. And he first began to be interested in Africa when he read a book that was made available to him about slavery around the world. And so Titus began to develop a sense of compassion for those who are experiencing spiritual thirst, particularly in Zaire. After he arrived, he wrote a letter back to the mission board where he laid out a vision of sending 150 missionaries to establish hospitals and schools and mission bases and to form partnerships with other churches and with other movements because the need was so great. His biographer writes this, a dreamer? Yes, Titus was a dreamer and often dismissed as one not to be taken seriously. But his dream from the vantage point of years, is seen as a true vision. Titus Johnson was a special man for a special task, but without his God-given vision, there would have been no task in Zaire, not for him, not for the church. Titus Johnson identified the spiritual thirst in Zaire, and that sparked his God-given vision for that task. The end of verse 1 says, Come, Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Look at that again. Come, buy wine and buy milk without money and without cost. So somehow the thirsty one can receive refreshment even with empty pockets, even with nothing to offer in return. There's no cost. But yet Isaiah still uses the word buy. The reality is that while there's no price to pay, there was a cost. Today, from our vantage point, when we engage with this text, we understand that the water and the wine, the milk that Isaiah is referring to is representative of the, new, the gift of new life that God offers to us, the gift of salvation. That salvation is indeed free, but it did not come without a cost. That cost was paid by Jesus when he offered himself on the cross to pay the debt for our sin, for our rebellion. Isaiah has just referenced this very reality just two chapters earlier in Isaiah 53 when he says that it was by his wounds, Jesus' wounds, that we are healed. Well, moving on, verse 2 says, Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? You see, there's a counterfeit on the market, something that seems to promise satisfaction, but in the end doesn't satisfy at all. That is so true in our world today, isn't it? People who are spending all kinds of things, monetary and other things, 
to find something that satisfies that's only going to leave them thirsty. Jesus' words to the woman at the well come to mind for me. He says in John 4, 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The genuine thing is rich. It's satisfying. It's good. It's the richest affair. It's like a glorious table set with the most delicious selection of food and drink. And the table has been laid so that all who partake of it are going to delight in it. But we need to note that although all are invited to partake, not all choose to do so. The Hebrew text demonstrates this explicitly. The word come, ho, is an imperative plural. You all, everyone, y'all, come. But the following phrase, all who are thirsty, is singular. The idea being for us that while the invitation is made to everyone, not everyone accepts the invitation. All are indeed invited, but not everyone is thirsty. Well, we turn our attention now to the second bit of the text where we see some things about the mission of God's people. Beginning in verse 3, the writer begins to discuss how it is that God uses his people in his work of inviting the thirsty to come and find the satisfying waters. Look at verse 4 with me. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David, I have made him a witness to the people's. This is quite important, and I want to make sure that we all catch the significance of what is happening here. Who has been made a witness to the peoples? David. The text names David. But King David is no longer alive when this text was being written. So we, we understand that the author has all Israel in mind when he speaks of David. And now as we've seen the entire narrative of Scripture unfold, we know that the promises which were made to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And furthermore, we know that all those who are in Christ are a part of the fulfillment of those promises today as the body of Christ. God has made his church, the people of God, to be a witness to the peoples. And in verse 5, we read more about that witness. Surely you will summon nations you know not. And nations you do not know will come running to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. The Hebrew text uses the word goy, where we see the word nations in English. And that was a term that represented generally the entire Gentile world. Everyone who was not a part of the nation of Israel was a part of the nations. And so we see that this prophecy has, has a worldwide, a, a global scope. So we're prompted here to think again about our theme for today, to think about Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. For he has endowed you with splendor. Oh, I love that. I love that. God has made his people to be a beautiful people. And it is the beauty, the splendor of his people that draws unbelievers, that draws the nations. 
It causes me to think of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Many of us have had the experience of coming upon the outskirts of a city which is lit up at night. It's something that's absolutely beautiful. Several weeks ago, I was returning from Ethiopia and I landed in London in the middle of the night. And the plane was drawing nearer and nearer to London. The glow of the city lights in the dark sky grew greater and greater and stronger and stronger. And as the plane made its way over the city, the outline of streets and buildings and bridges began to appear. They were all painted in the most splendid of light. I had this urge to reach for my phone and take a picture. I was captivated. I was captivated by the beauty. The lights of the city endowed it with a splendor that attracted my attention. I was captivated. And in a similar way, the beauty which is displayed by the people of God, the beauty which is displayed by this community here, the Evangelical Free Church of Crystal Lake, that splendid beauty will attract the attention of non-believers, those who have knowledge their spiritual thirst, and they will come running. That running, though, must be accompanied by repentance. Verse 7 makes this clear. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. One commentator said of this passage, We come as we are, but not to stay as we are. Coming to Jesus requires a change of direction. Anyone who who comes to the living waters must must turn from sin and turn to Christ. And that turning, that repentance has always been associated with the good news of the message of the gospel. Jesus associated the good news and repentance from the very start. In Mark 1.15, Jesus' first recorded words, The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent, And believe the good news. And time is of the essence. This offer will not always be available. Verse 6 makes that explicit. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. This returns us to that urgency we heard as we imagined that that market scene. And the the sellers, those who are out in the marketplace selling their wares, issuing this threefold come. Come, come. That word ho being called out in the crowded open market as closing time is nearing. Titus Johnson was aware of that urgency as he made efforts to go to Congo as a missionary. When I read his biography, I was struck by his tenacity and his drive, first leaving Sweden to travel to the U.S. to get theological training in Chicago, then traveling all across the country to raise the necessary financial support, then traveling to Congo to begin the work, then return to the United States to gain a medical degree. Get this, I learned this between the services. When he was getting his medical degree, and after he got his medical degree, while he was practicing at the Swedish hospital, Covenant Hospital in Chicago, delivered Carol Reese 80 years ago as a baby. Can you believe that? Got his medical degree... And then went back to Zaire to continue the work. And so his sense of determination, that conviction, was enough to help him navigate some difficult days. 
And that brings us now to the third section of this text, which begins in verse 8, where the author turns his thoughts towards the ways of God. Verse 8 reads, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The prophet here is bringing us face to face with the reality that with our limited mind, we can have no idea of what God is doing. We can have no clear sense of the big picture. Now let's remember to whom these words were originally written. They're written to God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, the children of Abraham. That's the Abraham to whom God said in Genesis chapter 12, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Well, over a series of centuries, that great nation rejected God's ways. And as a result, after centuries of rebellion, God allowed their beautiful capital city of Jerusalem to be destroyed. The temple, the locus of God's presence on earth. The prophet Ezekiel describes the powerful, the sorrowful moment when God's presence departs the city of Jerusalem. And 2 Kings 25 describes the horrific scene in which the temple and the entire city was brought to ruins by the Babylonian invaders. And so now this people who have been blessed to be a blessing are captives in Babylon. Ugh, Babylon. In Psalm 137, one says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. But it's to those weeping people sitting by the rivers of Babylon, brought so low by the consequence of their rebellion that Isaiah writes these words of Yahweh, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. This is not how you would have imagined the story to play out. But trust me, my plans for you are still perfect. Friends, throughout the years that Jody and I have been involved in missions, Jody has, uh, God, has demonstrated time and time again that his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. I can think of times when we experienced such great betrayal by local ministry partners in Budapest, or a time when a significant sum of money was stolen by a ministry partner that we trusted. Some of the most hurtful and inconsequential things that a human being has ever done to me. Or a time when I was at the helm of leading a team when it seemed that the first church plant that had been associated with our work, kind of the crown jewel, was not going to survive and I had to communicate that message. It was not at all what I would have hoped for. And yet God's plan was still unfolding. His word is still faithful. There were times when I was literally at the end of myself. I, I can distinctly remember a time when the weight of ministry leadership was, was, uh, was so heavy on, on me that I literally wasn't able to, to leave our bedroom. We had house guests at the time who traveled from the U.S. and I absolutely didn't have the capacity to be present and to be social. It, it's one of the darkest moments I can remember so far in my life. This story was not playing out how I imagined but in those dark moments, God's word was still faithful. And just as the prophet says in verse 11, God's word will not 
return to him empty. It will accomplish what God desires and will achieve the purpose for which he sent it. The same thing was true for Titus Johnson in his early work in Zaire. In those early days, he came bearing the word of God. He was aware of its power, aware of its purposes, but many, many dark moments came along the way. He lost nearly all of the money that he raised in that set of months of traveling around the United States to start the work because the person here in the U.S. that he had entrusted the money to and eventually to transfer it to him uh, in Zaire mishandled it. It was all gone. He met a young missionary woman uh, before he deployed and they became engaged and shortly after they both arrived in Zaire, she died. He had to bury his fiance. She died of a disease that could have been easily cured. It would have been very easy, I think, for Titus to turn back, to conclude that things weren't working out. But on this occasion of the 100th anniversary of his arrival, we cannot help but acknowledge that God's word did not return to him void. 100, 1,500 evangelical free churches in Congo and 2 million members who are following Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the party which is going to take place next Sunday in Kinshasa, Congo, as that centennial is celebrated? And to God be the glory. And those facts bring us then to the last two verses of this chapter where the prophet does have God's glory in view. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. The picture of going out speaks specifically of of the return to Jerusalem from those who have been in exile in Babylon. It is a picture of joy and celebration, the opportunity to return home after 70 years of captivity. But then very quickly, the picture begins to broaden and, and depict the idea of a flourishing life. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, myrtle will grow. We're presented with a, with a, a stark contrast here. Instead of thorn bushes and briars, these are the kinds of invasive plants that grow in the wild, the kinds of things that you spend a whole Saturday trying to remove from your property because they're, they're, they're threatening to take over. They're not beautiful. They're not useful. But instead of them, the juniper and the myrtle will grow. These are beautiful plants. These are useful plants. And the writer then is giving us a picture of a contrast from a desolate place to a flourishing place, from a place of death to a place of life. And this contrast is consistent, a consistent picture through all of Scripture that speaks of the change that comes through the gospel. Desolate to flourishing, darkness to light, death, to life. That's our story. That's our story, isn't it, friends? And as a result of that change, God's glory is made known. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Let's bring this home with some personal application Let's connect it to the theme of our missions conference. You will be my witnesses. A witness is one who gives an account 
of what he or she has seen and experienced. And here in this room, there are hundreds of us who have experienced the transformation that God has brought into our lives. We've seen our lives move from a place of of, of desolation, a place overtaken by thorn bushes and briars, to one of fruitfulness and flourishing life. We've experienced the reality of being brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. And so we all are uniquely well-positioned to be like the one at the beginning of the text today, calling out, come, come, all you who are thirsty, drink from the water. We are uniquely suited to extend this great invitation to all that God has placed around us who are spiritually thirsty, to invite them to find the life-giving waters that will actually satisfy. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In my view, Jerusalem represents the people who are close to me, in my home, in my household, in my neighborhood, in my closest circles of relationships. I need to ask myself, who are the spiritually thirsty in my Jerusalem? Judea. I like to think of Judea as as those who are close to me and like me. So maybe a little bit farther away than than my household and my, my close circles of influence, but not far away and not a lot different. And there are people in in those spaces who are spiritually thirsty. And then I think of Samaria, and I like to think of Samaria not not as necessarily those who are in some kind of a concentric ring that's a little bit farther away, but those who are not too far away because Samaria wasn't all that far away. But the people there were very different. They had a very different worldview. They had a very different belief system. They had a very different culture. They're not far away, but they're different enough that Extending that offer to find the living waters involves crossing some kind of a barrier. Who are the people in your Samaria to whom you could offer the invitation, come, come and drink? And then finally, the ends of the earth. Are there perhaps those among us today who God is calling someone like Titus Johnson, maybe here in this room? being called and prepared by God to go to a faraway land. Or maybe God has positioned you and blessed you and resourced you so that you could be a significant part of sending someone who was going to one of those places where the spiritual thirst is great. Well, in conclusion, I want to just return one more time to the idea that comes from our text that God has made us to be a beautiful people a splendid people. He has made you as a community here at the Evangelical Free Church of Crystal Lake to be a beautiful expression of the people of God. As a result of that beauty that he has created among you, spiritually thirsty people will come running to meet the Lord, the giver of living water. May we be that kind of beautiful community that kind of splendid community that people can't help but look upon because it's so beautiful. May that be represented in the relationships that you have with one another here, that those who look upon you would see that beauty and would find that this is the place. You are the people who can offer them that living water. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for how you have spoken to us today. First of all, Father, we thank you that you do offer to us, those who are spiritually thirsty, a gift of water that promises to satisfy. A living water that if we drink of it, we'll never be thirsty again. Father, we thank you for the realization that you have chosen to involve us in your work of offering this invitation to all those who are spiritually thirsty in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we thank you for the reminder that even as we encounter difficulties along the path, when the story doesn't seem to be playing out the way that we hoped it might, that your word will not return void. And Father, we thank you most of all that you have made us to be a picture of your beauty, that you have made us to be a community that represents your splendid glory to the world. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen.